Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 66 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. If you're just checking into the podcast to hear this interview, a warm welcome to you. If you are a writer, I'd encourage you to check out some of the other episodes in the podcast. The aim of the Creative Writers Toolbelt is to provide you with practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. If you enjoy author interviews, you'll find plenty of those mixed in with the tutorial episodes of the podcast. So please do check us out, download whatever's of interest to you and subscribe via your podcast feed if you want to stay in touch with us. We also have a group on Goodreads. You're very welcome to join us there. Just go to goodreads.com, look up the Creative Writers Toolbelt. You could search for us on Twitter. We're at Writers Toolbelt. And my website is andrewjchamberlain.com. Do feel free to contact me there. I always like to hear from listeners. So this episode is an interview with Becky Chambers, author of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. I had a great chat with Becky. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. And welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. Now, my guest for this episode is the writer Becky Chambers. And Becky is the author of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, her debut novel, which was nominated for a Kitschy in 2014, longlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction this year, and has been shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. She's also written an upcoming standalone sequel to that novel, which is called A Closed and Common Orbit, which will be published later this year. She also writes non-fiction essays and short stories. And in addition to writing, Becky has a background in the performing arts and grew up in a family heavily involved in space science. She's worked as a technical writer, a bartender, a production assistant, amongst other things. And she's also lived in Scotland and Iceland before moving back to her home state of California. So welcome, Becky, to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So I want to ask you the question which I always ask everybody when they come onto the show. Going back to when you were a child, what were the formative works that inspired you? And that could be books or films or TV. Right. Well, I, I read everything as a kid. I was an absolutely voracious reader, um, not really confined to any particular genre. I was just I was always in the library or the or the bookstore and that hasn't really changed. The big things for me though, at least in terms of of, of the things that influence my current work, I grew up with Star Wars and Star Trek in equal measure. I can't remember life without them. Um, you know, so those were those were huge for me. You know, I, I was always in my head as a kid, you know, traveling to, to other places and, um, you know, having space battles and, and all that good stuff. But it really wasn't until I was in my early teens that I, I really started reading science fiction more seriously. Before that, you know, maybe a few sort of very pulpy adventure stories here and there. But Carl Sagan was was my intro. The movie Contact came out when I was, I think I was about 12, and just had me hooked. And, and I read the novel. And then from there, it was just, it's just, it's snowballed ever since then. <laughs> so that, and then um, when I was in high school, I, I discovered Ursula K. Le Guin. I had a smart teacher who handed me the left hand of darkness and said, I think you will enjoy this. And, and, the, and that sort of got me going. So a hodgepodge of things, but um, but those are the big ones. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the influence of your family in that context as well. I think you said that scientific literacy was a strand of culture in your family. Can you can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about what, what the culture was in your family as you were growing up and how that influenced who you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So my mom is an educator. She teaches astrobiology. Um, and my father, he's recently retired 
um, was a civilian aerospace engineer. He worked on satellites. And um, my maternal grandfather uh, was a mathematician, and he worked on. He wasn't. A, he wasn't an employee of NASA, but he was. He was contracted during the Apollo program to work on orbital mechanics. And then he also worked on the shuttle program in its early days. So this to me was normal. <laughs> this, you yeah. know, this, this was just, <laughs> this was what families did, right? Families went to launches and, and took you to science conferences and, and things like that. There was no pressure for me to, to enter into a STEM field or anything along those lines, but scientific literacy, scientific wonder were things that were very much fostered in my family. You know, the, the bookshelves were full of things I could pull off and flip through mm. and, you know, we would watch nature shows together as a family and go to museums and, and things like that. So just the sense of always ask questions, always um, look for good evidence. These were, these were things that were instilled in me and, and things I was encouraged to do no matter what field I wanted to enter. And it, it sounds, as you say, it wasn't like foisted on your anything, but it was just, you just seeped into you from the culture as you grew up. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, my, my, my educational background is in theater, so they, they okay. <laughs> so yeah, they didn't push, but, but yeah, it was just something I absorbed and was encouraged in. And I think, you know, that, that, that has, has hugely shaped me and, and, and my work as well. Just, I don't, I've never known a world that didn't have people going into space and they didn't have people exploring space. And so I, I think that manifests in my work as well, because people live there and are born there, but it's very commonplace. And I think that is probably a reflection of, of the way I grew up where it's like, oh, yeah, dad's dad's going to a launch this week. Like, that's that's a normal thing that happens. That, so. So, yeah, so sort of just the the everyday nature of, of science. I want to come on to talk about your book and some of the certain aspects of it. It did feel when I was reading your book as if amongst all the layers of stuff that are going on, there is obviously this sense of people are out in space. That's what they do. They're out in ships. They're on planets. They, they're doing their stuff and they're in, interacting with a, a whole range of other species. And that's kind of business as usual. So I guess that's that seemed to be a part of how you view what could be and perhaps how things have been for you as you were growing up. Yeah, definitely. My mother-in-law made a comment a few years ago that I think about a lot. I was talking to her about my family and it's important to know that that my in-laws um, are all from and live in Iceland, which is a, you know a country without a space program. And uh, I was explaining to her about you know my mom and my dad and my, my family history there. And she chewed on that for a little bit. And uh, she said something to the effect of, or for, for us, space is, is something we look at. For you, it's a place you go. And I think about that often because, yeah, for me, it's just this is this is what people do. But I, I know that that's not the case for for a lot of people, uh, you know, even in countries that have that have space programs, et cetera. So that's that's something I've, I've become cognizant of that, that that difference there. OK, we're going to talk about your book now, actually, a little bit. And I know that you crowdfunded the writing of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. I want to ask you a little bit about that. How how did you go about doing that? And what and what was the sort of critical mass of support that you had before you decided to make that decision? It was very seat of my pants. I would actually not recommend the way <laughs> I went about it to most people. People ask me a lot about crowdfunding and I give them a lot of advice that I did not necessarily follow myself. <laughs> I had a small follow, and I'm, I were talking within like dozens. It was not large. I was, I was writing for the Mary Sue at the time I had a weekly video game column. And, um, so I had people who knew my writing from there, but that was, that was the extent of it. And, you know, it was, it was a very niche, a very small niche at that. <laughs> um, so 
Um, I think part of it was that um, I wasn't hugely concerned about not having, you know, a massive following because I wasn't asking for a lot. My initial goal was was $2,500. And and really, the decision to go about the campaign was more about not knowing what else to do <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> I had this, I had this book that was almost done. And my my freelance work had dried up. And I, I was stuck. I, I was like, Oh, God, I've got, you know, I've got this gap to fill and I don't know what to do. And I didn't want to let the book go. Um, and so it was really just me taking a chance and throwing it out there. And I, I had made this deal with myself of if this doesn't work, this is a sign you need to be doing something else. And so really it, it came down to, to, to luck more than, well, I mean, I, I mean, I did have people who were reading my work and that was a big part of, of what made it successful. So I, I think that's really important for anyone thinking about going that route themselves to keep in mind is how, how do people know you? You know, if you've got a lot of friends and family or whatnot who are willing to help you out, great. Um, but if you're just banking on somebody deciding to browse Kickstarter to see if there are any good books that aren't written yet, that's not, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. No. So, but I think, yeah, again, I was, I was successful in the, the campaign was very small. If it, if it hadn't been, I don't, I don't think it would have gotten there. And by that, do you mean it was small and that your target was quite realistic? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't there saying, hey, you know, pay my salary for a year. I was I was asking for, for two months. So, yes, because I, I saw that you did a video for it. And I, from what I recall, you were saying, you know, guys, I need like six weeks or a couple of months of work to get this done. That's all. And, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's and that's it. And yeah, so it worked for you. Did you say you, you achieved your twenty five hundred, didn't you? I think I did. It went a little bit over, which I was oh. I was very happy about. Yeah. <laughs> so. You said that you would advise people now not to do some of the things you did. What what are the kind of two or three thing critical things that you would advise people to do if they were thinking of crowdfunding some kind of literary project or exercise? First and foremost, make sure you've already got a following. Second, be much better about self-promotion than me. I'm terrible at it. I'm notoriously bad at self-promotion. Um, so don't be afraid to to talk about it once you've actually done the thing. You know, that that's... If you're not making noise about it, people won't know that it's there. And, you know, you've, you've got to strike a delicate balance there, too. Nobody likes it when somebody's always popping up on their Twitter feed or Facebook feed every five minutes being like, hey, give me money. Like, no one, no one wants that. But be brave and be, um, be confident in your work. I think that was part of my thing was I wasn't sure that what I had was any good. And so I was I was shy about talking about it so take a stand you know go out there and say hey this is my thing and i think it rocks and and i think you'll like it yeah i think i think i could have been bolder about it and i would encourage other people to 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 do that to to really make the jump i'm guessing you might have been quite bold in actually doing a video for that kickstarter campaign because i i get the impression that doing videos of yourself or putting videos of yourself out is not the thing you love most doing no no i'm pretty shy about that actually so it was um <laughs> that that did take a bit of a bit of courage i think i spent the whole day just like deleting things over and over being hypercritical about it so yes okay that that part did take a, a little bit of bravery but hey it, it worked for you didn't it because you got your target and you got your book and you've published it and it's, it's been all good we, we're gonna t- i want to talk a little bit later about the progression on from there but uh, let's let's focus on the book for a moment i want to ask you first of all then uh, with regard to the book whether the characters or the plot came first or whether it was a little bit of both characters first definitely i I had the characters for a long time and it was one of the things that prevented me from getting started with the book for a really long time was i i wasn't sure what to do with them i had all i had these Mm. characters i had this crew 
And I would write these scenes just for years. I was writing scenes with them. And in my mind at the time, I didn't, I didn't see a connection there. I was, I was kind of like, oh, I've got these guys, but I, uh, did you have all of them? Sorry. Did you have all of your guys, your, your whole nine crew? Yeah. All, they were all there. So they were all just kind of knocking about. Yes. Yes. They, but there wasn't a plot. Yeah. I've got a huge box of notebooks um, uh, okay. from, I think about 2005 until um, 2012 through 13, which is when I wrote the long way, um, which was, it was, and it was just bits and pieces. I would just, I would think of little bits of dialogue between them. I would think about things they were doing that particular day. Um, and they just, they, they hung out with me for a really long time. I think I read somewhere that of all of those characters, Sissix was the one that came to you first is that is that correct that is correct did the others uh, did the others come to you fairly quickly after that or did they gradually i mean how much how or how much work did you have to do to kind of lure those other characters into this space for the most part um they followed pretty quickly after her some of them went through different permutations like a few permutations before before i got to who they are now for the most part they 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 just kind of fell in line one after the other. I can't really, exp- I can't explain how that worked, but they, they did. Um, the one I had the, I had the most challenging time with was Ohan. He went through a lot of different versions before I finally settled on what he was in the end. Um, you know, I, I wanted a plural entity. I wanted something that would challenge ideas about individuality and, and about species. But him having a virus, in his initial, there were a bunch of different versions, but, you know, at one point he had like an actual physical parasite, you know, things like that. And it just that he took a lot of playing with both in terms of, you know, how, what, what the plurality of, of, of him entailed and also just his physicality in general. I changed a lot of things about, about the aliens. Like at some point I decided it, Dr. Chef needed six legs, you know, things like that. So, <laughs> yeah, um, that virus that Ohan has, that's quite a deal towards the end of the book, isn't it? That's, that's, that's pretty integral to what's going on there. And there are some decisions that have to be made. So it's, it's very interesting. We'll, again, we'll talk about this, I think, because so much of what happens in that book has a moral context to it, I think, doesn't it? I, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that later on, but just to keep focused on the, the, the characters for now. Um, did you draw on any of your own experiences to create those characters oh heavily 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 so some of the characters are uh, well what okay kizzy in particular um kizzy is lifted wholesale from a college friend of mine right <laughs> and so i mean there, there are there are things that kizzy said that 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 just fell out of my friend's mouth so so and that actually made her very easy to write because i could just sit there writing kizzy and be like what would christine christine say in this situation and that was actually <laughs> why she ended up in the book is i wanted the opposite so for those who haven't read it kizzy is the is um one of the mechanics and i wanted the opposite of a uh, a starfleet whiz kid who could you know rewrite the book on physics in 5 minutes i wanted someone a little a little more real and and maybe someone who'd stress you out a little bit more so i asked myself when creating the characters i said okay well if you're in the engine room and everything's going to hell who is the last person in the world you want handling this and the first thing that came to mind is i was like oh my friend christine like absolutely <laughs> it would be a disaster. And so I just I, I went with from there with her. As for the other characters, you know, they they've all got bits and pieces of, of people I've met or or, you know, um things about myself or just, you know, conversations I've overheard, that kind of thing. So um Does your friend Christine know that she's uh, that she was a source for Kizzy? She she does. I well, okay, I ha- I, she and I she and I fell out of touch a number of years ago. Not, nothing dramatic, just you know, life. Um, 
but she knew because she had seen before I started writing it as a book, she'd seen some of my original scenes and she thought it was hilarious. And she, um, she drew a picture of herself as Kizzy, which I still have. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think she should take it as a compliment because I think Kizzy is a great character. In fact, I, I do want to ask you about, um, these two characters, Kizzy and Jenks, who are kind of, um, dynamic duo. Or probably a kind of yin and yang almost on on this ship, aren't they? They're, they're quite different people, but they have this great relationship. It's very close, but it's very platonic. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask ask you a little bit about that. Did the platonic nature of their relationship grow out of who they are? Was it important to you that they had this very very close, almost like brotherly sisterly kind of sibling thing going on? How did how did that work in your mind? Yeah, that that relationship was is is was one of the most important things to me. It's one of my favorite things in the book. Kizzy and Jenks have always been together. When I first started picturing Kizzy, you know, as, as a sort of an offshoot of Christine, that the scene in the book where we meet them, where Kizzy and Jenks are working on the air filter and he's standing on her shoulders, that was just an image I had. I pictured Kizzy and there was this, there was this guy with her. So, you know, you can't have one without the other in my mind. And in terms of the way their relationship played out, I really value seeing close friendships in stories. I don't think it's something we spotlight as often as we do romantic relationships. And and granted, romantic relationships are great. But I think I think friendship is something we don't get into not not in the same way. We don't value it in quite the same way. And granted it is a very different sort of affection. But especially if you're talking about between male and female characters, it's very rare to see that, to see a man and a woman who are just friends and they they need each other and they're super important, but there is never a romantic or a sexual uh component to that. It's just their family, you know, and that that's just who they are. And I, I think I, also because it's a, it's a trope I dislike, I think that the, the will they or won't they question is something that kind of peaked with Mulder and Scully and we've just had diminishing returns <laughs> then. And I just get really frustrated anytime I watch a show and I'm like, oh, I really like these two. And at some point they kiss and I'm like, could they just have, could they just have been buddies? And I think that that comes from me just because um, historically most of my friends have, have been dudes. So I think I think I like seeing that reflected uh, in story. So that's so that's where I was coming from with those two. I mean, I think it's reflected really well, actually, because I, I, I confess I did a kind of well, are they what's going on here? You know, are they together? Because mm-hmm. uh, thinking about not knowing I was going to have a chat with you and reading the book and I was making some notes and initially I thought, OK, these guys, they they look like they're together or maybe they are together. What's going And even as you say, in the early scene, the first scene, they are they're physically touching each other because one's standing on top of the other one. Um, mm-hmm. So there's no kind of physical inhibition there, but the the sibling nature of it or whatever it is just seemed very natural and right for them because they do love each other, don't they? I think that's the impression they get. Yes, they yes. really do. Fair but enough. they have absolutely no interest in each other, you know, on, in a romantic sense. No, none whatsoever. I actually had an early my my first draft of the book included a scene which I am so glad I scrapped. I actually did write a scene where it was it was intimated that like Kizzy had feelings for Jenks. And I I have tried so many times to understand why I did that. And I think it's really because I just was like, well, this is what happens in stories. You know, I was just sort of on this like yeah. this this yeah. default you know, like autopilot. Well, this is what happens. And I was looking at it and I was like, but I hate this. I hate it when stories do that. Why did I write this in? And I still don't know why I did. And it was just one of those unconscious things. Like we, 
we absorb so many different tropes from stories that you don't even realize you're acting on them. And I think, I think they just came out readers mileage may vary, but I think they, they came out a lot stronger (laughs) for not having that because it just felt really unnatural to me. It felt like something I was, I was putting in there because I felt like it should be in there, not because it's who they authentically were to me. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. Do you think that maybe when you were starting work on the book, you had yet to build up the courage or the confidence in the work? And and so therefore you were a little bit influenced by, oh, this has got to happen and that's got to happen. And, you know, we've got to have this romantic thing going on. But then actually, as as the story matured, you found the authentic story, I guess. And and the authentic story is they're just friends and that's it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I think that needing to have faith in it was something that it was it was a common theme throughout my process. I you know as I mentioned I had all these these scenes and you know this whole box full of notes and the for the longest time I thought there was nothing there. I was like well there's no three act structure there's no like big MacGuffin-y plot. This isn't a book. And it was just the moment where I was like well I, I think it is actually because I like reading it. <laughs> so, you know, and it really it just it was it was me taking a chance and saying okay, I'm going to write something that isn't structured like, um, you know, in, in the way we're taught books should be structured. It doesn't have, you know, this, you know, some big central conflict. There are conflicts, of course, but that's not the driving force of the book. There are and will be people out there who, who don't like it because of that. And that's fine. Like, I knew going into it that it wouldn't be for everybody. You know, I knew that I was I was trying something a little different. And it was something that I did have to tell myself, like, this is okay. It doesn't have to be like everything else. There's an interesting point there, I think, for every writer, because although we've got to learn our craft and we've got to be aware of how story works, if you've got something in your head and you're working something out, you've got to stay true to it, haven't you, I guess? Absolutely. It's this very fine line because, you know, there are things in storytelling that work and things that don't, but you can break those rules and you can bend them. You know, usually the rules are there for very good reason. When we say, you know, three acts and conflict and, you know, you should have all of these things, that's there for a good reason because usually it works pretty well. But there, there's no set in, in stone way to write a book. You know, the, sto- the story you want to tell is your story and you should you should do it in the way that feels right to you. Yeah. I want to come to the setting, I suppose, and the, the background of, of your work, because you seem to have a very strong vision, which we alluded to earlier, around the sense of wonder that space and out there can inspire. Do you think you're trying to reflect that wonder in your work? Oh, I'm I'm absolutely trying to reflect that in my work. Um, that's, that's one of the things I, I do very consciously. Space to me, and I won't do my best to not wax too poetic because I can, I can go all day. <laughs> Space to me is a very dangerous like thing for me to preface anything with. But it 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 inspires me like nothing else. I think this this understanding that our species has achieved of us on a planetary scale is one of the most important ideas and understandings that that, that we've ever had. And I think it's something that is still very difficult to connect to. And something we, we very often lose sight of because it's, it's impossible to imagine, you know, if you're just down here on earth, there's no way to know that we're all living on this, this fragile ball out in the middle of nothing, you know, with surrounded by billions more fragile balls that we, we, we haven't even begun to understand. So yeah, it inspires me. It centers me. To me, it's, it's the most important thing because I think once you start thinking about the world in that context, in the context of what else is out there, it makes, it makes all the problems that we've invented kind of ridiculous. And, um, <laughs> and it, it really, you know, it, it, it changes your perspective on things and it helps you reprioritize. So I think anything we can do to connect to that is important, um, you know, and, and maybe that sounds a little 
I don't know, optimistic or overly so, but I, I really think the, and the more we can do to, to tell stories about space and you get people interested in it, I, I really do believe that can only have a positive impact. Hmm. So do you think that given the fact that so many stories around science fiction and around the fantastic are dystopian and a bit downbeat, do you feel as if you're being a little bit countercultural, kind of pointing to the stars and saying, look, guys, look what's out there and isn't it great? I, I certainly hope so. I mean, that's that's what I would very much like to do. I mean, I th- the thing about dystopia, I think to, to some extent it's healthy and expected, right? We're living in really uncertain times. We have the thing that comes along with that global understanding is like this global anxiety, this feeling of, oh God, like I just threw away a styrofoam cup and I've doomed the planet. Like, you know, and it makes it really, we have these problems that we have no idea how to, how to fix. And it kind of, you know, in some ways yeah, looks like, yeah. you know, we're all kind of doomed. So I understand where dystopia comes from, you know, and I understand that science fiction in general, I mean, that's, that's the value of it is exploring what our future could look like and dystopias or apocalypses. These are all cautionary tales, right? They're all, they're all stories for us to be able mm. to express mm. our fear and to, to try and avoid the dangers that are out there. And I think that's all really good. And I think it's something we need to be expressing right now. But I think, I think there does need to be this counterbalance of, but w- look where we could go. You know, like if we get past all of this, that look where we could end up. You know, there there has to be a reason for surviving. We can't just survive for survival's sake. You know, there has to be something where we're aspiring to. And and for for me, space is is that thing. You know, so so the fear is real, but we have to hope as well and be brave and exactly. look out there as well with that and and, and have the both mm-hmm. intentional. That's right. Now, one of the other themes that I I note in your work and in some of the comments that you've made about your work is that you are interested not so much in the lives of the superheroes of space but in the lives of ordinary people Mm -hmm. in in the context in which you write so so you're interested in in how ordinary people could exist and work and live in in a science fiction context can can you tell us a little bit about why why that's so important to you and how that works in 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 your novel well that goes hand in hand with what i what i just said about yeah the, the 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 global perspective connecting to that. We have this, and very rightly so, we have this understanding of, of space in the universe that, that it belongs to, for lack of a better term, the 1%. Right. Like it is not something that belongs to everybody. You know, it, it originally in the early days of the space race, you've got the military elite and nowadays astronaut corps, you know, we're looking for very different things in the, in astronauts than we were in the fifties. But now we're talking about the intellectual elite, right? We're talking about people who are sort of the best of us, Really, I mean, you look, you look at like the backgrounds of astronauts and you're just like, well, that, that's a better person than me. Like just in every, <laughs> in every possible way. And you've also got the wealthy, right? You've got, you've got the economic elite, people who are rich enough to hitch a ride on the Soyuz or to put down a deposit on Virgin Galactic. So space does not feel like something that belongs to all of us. Even if you want to view space, we've gotten to this point where most of us live in cities now or in urban areas Mm. you know in suburban areas if you want to view the naked milky way you have to have the privilege to get a car and travel or potentially get a telescope you know these are things that not everyone can do it it blows my mind how many of my peers you know i'm in my 30s and, and and i have so many friends who 
haven't looked through a telescope before or who I was with the first time they ever saw the moon through a telescope. And that's something I think we really need to fix because, because space is something that, that does belong to all of us. The planet and the universe things we are a part of, they belong to all of us equally. So in bringing that back around to, to ordinary folks, that was something I, I, I hitched my wagon to very intentionally with the long way of like, look, these are people that history is not going to remember. These, these people's names are, are not going to be recorded anywhere. These are, these are just people working, trying to get through the day, trying to, you know, yep. trying to eat. And I think that's an important thing because our science fiction is always also focused on the military elite and the the intellectual elite, you know, the heroes and the villains, and it's never focused on the people in the background. And I think it perpetuates this idea that the universe doesn't belong to anybody. So I I, I wanted to shift that a little bit. I wanted to point the lens to the people in the background and be like, actually, no, it does. Yeah. So it's almost like it belongs to the community. Yes. Okay. Now, I want to, I want to talk about as well about the, the kind of mood and the flavor of your work, because there were some things that really, really struck me as I was reading it. And one of them certainly is this sense of joy. I couldn't think of an the word really i think it was a sense of joy in the book would you agree with that is that a conscious decision what was your thinking there well i'm, I'm happy to hear that because that, that was conscious to, to a point i mean i wanted i wanted in the end all the the philosophical threads aside in the end the, the main goal i wanted to achieve was a book that was fun to read and that made you feel good at the end like that was <laughs> that was what yeah. i wanted because that's typically what i want when i'm interacting with fiction you know i'm happy when you know to to get into complicated territory or for things to be stressful or scary or what have you but in the end i want i i want to feel good for having lived there for a little bit and i think also because you know you know, the book does deal with some some more serious things. I, I I felt that that's how you get through the serious things, right? You get through the serious things by focusing on on the wonder, and the good things, and your friends and your family, and you know having dinner together and all of these things. So I, I wanted to to focus on yeah, life is hard and things don't go well sometimes, but but it is still good. Like life is still good ultimately. It's interesting what you're saying there because the joy in the book is evident and the humor i mean I'd, a lot of situational humor as i'd call it where i mean you just throw kizzy and jenks together for example and something crazy and funny <laughs> is going to happen but there, that is the context in which you present quite a lot of uh, not in a teaching sense but moral lessons almost or moral and social lessons i think for the characters They're just in the way they react they cope together but they have got something to cope with they have got a challenge mm. to face. It sounds like that was a deliberate literary choice for you. Well, I think, I, you know, I think it kind of in some ways goes back to uh, what you were saying about dystopia and about things being, you know, this sort of grim tone that we see in a lot of science fiction, not universally, but in a lot. And I, I think, you know, just even in our, in our own real world lives, you know, like things get tough and, and things get challenging. And a lot of times all you can do is laugh at it <laughs> and move on and be like, you know, and, and find, find the levity in between those things because life is often unfair and is often frightening. And if we are going to get through those scary things together, if we are going to push past the dystopia and end up somewhere good we need to be able to laugh at it and we need to be able to have fun but no one seems to cope alone in your book do they it, it's yes it's, there's a big thing or it seems to me around we whoever whichever subset of them it is we cope together mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's i guess that's 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 just some, that is something that you're trying to bring out of this isn't it I, I think it isn't that we cope on our own we cope with others with our friends family whatever oh exactly exactly and it's the only way both you know you can look at it both on a, on a m micro and a macro scale you know, if you're talking about personal challenges, that's what you do. You go to your friends, you go to your family. If you don't, you, you know, you might get through 
it, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a slog, you know? And if you, if you, if, and then if you pull the lens out and you start looking at the challenges we have here on our planet, that's the only way we're going to get through all of this. It's not going to be the efforts of one person, you know, it's only through all of us working together and, and, and finding ways to, to cooperate and collaborate despite our differences. But, you know, that, that's how any problem gets solved. You know, we're a social species and we have to, we have to acknowledge that. Now, I want to just turn it around a little bit and talk about the way in which you created the setting, uh, particularly the kind of space setting for your work. Mm-hmm. And in the podcast at the moment, I'm talking about setting and, and creating setting. And my proposition to people has been that, that there's two key things to setting. One is that it is immersive. So it's somewhere in which people can lose themselves and enjoy being in part of that place. But also it has to be credible. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to focus on the kind of credible size. What did you do in your book to make what is in fact a fantastic story in every sense of the word credible? What are the things that you did to make that happen? Um, the big thing I did was look at the example of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And the thing is, there's no right or wrong answer here. I want to be very, very clear about that. It really depends on what kind of science fiction you're writing or really any what kind of anything in any genre you're writing. Jules Verne was really into writing uh, scientifically credible work. And he went to extraordinary detail to explain how the technology in his books worked. Whereas H.G. Wells was like, it works. It's a thing and it works. Here, it's an airship and it works. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Like, it's... (laughs) It's there because I said so. And I think that approach, the approach of this is a thing and it works, is a little more evergreen. Again, if you're writing hard science fiction, obviously this does not apply. Uh, You know, if you're writing super hard, you know, I I really want to know how every single gadget in this universe works. That's a different kind of story. And then you've got it. Then you've got to go draw some blueprints. But for me, um, it was not as important for the reader to know here is how you actually build a wormhole. I don't need you to know how you actually build a wormhole because I don't know how you actually build a wormhole. I have no idea. Um, you know, I have a gen- I have a general idea. Of no how- one does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have a general idea of how wormholes work, but I wasn't going to sit and explain here's the technology and here's how it works because I, you would lose people really fast. The people who don't have a scientific background are going to be lost and they're going to be bored. And the people who do are going to look at it and say, well, that wouldn't work. So not dumbing it down, but sort of glossing it over. Again, treating it as an everyday thing, right? I use my smart my I use my smartphone every day. I have no idea how it works, but I use it every day. And I think that's a thing you need to think about when creating any sort of fantastical world is that for most people, these things are ordinary. You don't need to know how a computer works in order to use it. It's just there, you know? So if you, if you just bake it in and make it, this is, you know, you, you explain it in a way so the reader understands what the technology does, but you don't necessarily need to break down and here's how it works. You can, if you want to, because, you know, that's that's its own subgenre. But I think that helps with credibility. You know, it's much easier to imagine, oh, like wormholes are a thing and you can travel through them rather than wormholes are a thing and here's 10 pages on how. So I think I think keeping it simple is important. And do you think that actually worked with the nature of the characters? Because I think yours is an, a character driven novel. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm saying that because th- I was just thinking there. I couldn't imagine your character Kizzy, for example, giving us five pages on how bits of the ship would work right Mm -hmm. i don't think a kind of hard sci-fi feel to the description would have worked with the with the what you were creating no it wasn't really the appropriate setting for it because it wasn't the main focus you know if you're talking about a book like the martian 
where the science is absolutely the focus, then yeah, that's entirely appropriate. But the other thing about it too is Kizzy's actually a great example because yeah, this is what she does for a living and she should, she, she could very well go through five pages of how a thing works because that's, that's what she does, but that's not what she's going to be talking about with her friends. You know, and that's not what she's going to be doing most of her day is explaining. And here's how this thing works. And the other thing is most of these people would already know that. So there's no way, there's no reason for them to explain. You know, that's the, that's the other trick with science fiction and fantasy is figuring out, um, and something that's always a challenge for me actually is finding ways to explain things to the reader that should be obvious within the universe itself. Because most of us don't go around being like, ah, here's a car. Let me now explain the history. Of how a car works to you, my friend who has ridden in one their entire no, no, life. No, you know, we no. don't do that. So It sounds a bit showing, not telling mm-hmm. almost, doesn't it, with some of that? Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to change tack slightly and talk about the process that you went through because you, you're you in a little bit of a unique position in that you've, you've self-published and you've been commercially published. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's the same book. Yes. Um, so you've, you've been <laughs> through that process. Can you just give us a little bit of a, a flavor for how that was for you, both of those different experiences, how they, what was good about them and how they differed, stuff like that? I, I count myself very lucky in having had both experiences in that I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to get a book out there. I, I, I really think self-publishing is every bit as, as valid and viable as as traditional publishing they just have different pros and cons so it was very valuable for me for trying out both and seeing which fit me better and and that's something each writer kind of has to determine individually for me i think traditional publishing is a better fit not for every project i think but in terms of books like it it was really nice with my last one to have an editor just there and to know that somebody else would do the marketing for me because I really hate doing that stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm just also not very good at it. I'm not very good at it. And it was something when I went about self-publishing the long way that I, I knew I was going to struggle with and was very mindful going in. So I think self-publishing is great in that you have complete control and you get to make all the decisions, which is really wonderful for something like a book because it's so personal. You know, your, your name is the only one on the cover. You don't have a list of credits, right? It's like your, your name is the only one there. So, and it is very personal and very individual. So in that, there is a lot of appeal in, in cool. I get to make all the decisions. Like I get to hire the cover artist and I get to decide, you know, where it's, where I'm going to distribute it and all that. So if that appeals to you, if, if dealing with all of the, nitty gritty business side of things and being the the sole arbiter of those decisions appeals to you self-publishing like that is absolutely your jam if you just want to focus on writing and let other people deal with the business side of things traditional publishing i think you know has the advantage there so again depends on the project but they both offer some really great advantages Okay. And one of the other things that I've talked about in the past on the podcast is this, I guess it's almost a spectrum between people who do loads of planning before they start and people who just sit and go and just totally off the seat of the pants, just go for it. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I think you might have given us some clues about where you are, which side of that you are, but it would be good just to hear your views on that. Are you more a planner or more a seat of the pants kind of person? You know, I... A year ago, I would have said seat of the pants, but 
with a closed and common orbit, it was such a different process. So the long way, it, it was very seat of my pants. You know, I had a rough outline that changed constantly. Like I was always shuffling things around. My go-to is post-it notes. Um, I'll put like scenes on a post-it note and that way I can move it around the wall depending on where I want to put it. But closed and common was really different because I was on contract and I had a deadline and I was doing, doing it alongside a day job, which I'd never done before. You know, when I wrote the long way, I was freelancing. So I had a lot more wiggle room in my schedule. And now I had a nine to five and it was like, Oh, okay. So close in common, I had, I did have more of a strict outline. Things changed, you know, scenes didn't always go the way I anticipated they would. And then I'd have to, you know, adjust from there, but I had very little, I had comparatively little time. You know, I wrote Close in Common over the course of nine months and had, you know, had to to schedule it very rigor- rigorously. And so in that, I, I don't think I could have done it without having an outline that I checked religiously through that process. Okay. And with that one, the Close in Common Orbit, am I right in thinking that that was once you had signed with Hodder and Staunton? So you had a publishing house asking you to write and you had a, a process and a framework. And so there was, it was a bit more of a kind of stricter regime then. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I, I had the deal um, for Closed and Common before I had started writing it. So that was, it was just a, it was a wholly different process from beginning to end. It was a really good one, but it just the, the way the two books came about could not be different. It's interesting that you say up until recently, you think you would be more a seat of your pants. And yet you had notes everywhere. It sounds like you spent years yeah. gathering notes and reflecting mm-hmm. on things. So did you not think of that then necessarily as planning? I guess not. Now that you bring it up, now I'm sort of reexamining that thought. I suppose that is planning in a way. But it, it's, it, well, there was nothing methodical about it. I think maybe that's why I didn't see it that way. But no, I, I think you're right in that it was, you know, I had different ideas and different things I was working with and things I wanted to read research but um but it wasn't linear and i think i think that's where i'm coming from with it okay and i don't see a contradiction in what you've said actually because i suspect that what you were doing over the years wasn't here's my book structure and i've done it it was it was the very early just kind of formative Mm -hmm. i mean you were saying you just you're just taking creating some characters and putting them together and seeing what happens right so i want to move on now and talk about research you talked about research in that last answer just briefly how how do you go about doing your research for your work and and how important is it to get a rounded approach by which I mean, yeah, you do the space stuff and the science stuff, but there's culture and there's art and literature and anthropology and all that other stuff going on. How does that work for you? Oh, I, I consume absolutely everything and anything I can get my hands on. If I'm researching something sciencey, it's generally because I'm fact checking something. You know, it's because I've written something down and I'm like, did does that work? Can I can I make that work? And typically I'll go to the internet or actually more often I'll go to my mom. She gets a lot of frantic emails <laughs> from me being like, mom, did I screw up this planet and she'll be like no you're fine or not like the last the last panic i had on that front she sent me out to get some play-doh so i could figure i could build a little solar system and and figure out how they moved but typically things like that though i've already had the inspiration for the idea for everything else i mean and i just encourage a lot of writers to do this in general like you never know where your ideas are going to come from so just absorb Mm. everything you know just so i actually if when i think about my my media consumption outside of working on my own stuff i don't read as much i mean i do read science fiction but i don't spend as much time on that as i do on say like 
playing video games or watching um, watching various TV shows or movies and things like that. So I'm I'm really pulling from a lot of different directions. So in terms of hard research, you know, uh, you know, I'll I'll go online, I'll go to the library, but that's usually because I've already had the idea. Everything else, I don't know where it's going to come from. So I just I just eat everything. <laughs> so you just absorb it all mm-hmm. from all directions, mm-hmm. really. Now you mentioned uh, Ursula Le Guin earlier. And I think you've said somewhere that um, Ursula Le Guin and John Scalzi are authors whose work you admire. Yes. So can you tell us why that, perhaps perhaps in each case, why that is and what you're looking for in a book perhaps that, that will really impress you? Sure. I mean, I like them for, for very different reasons. I mean, Le Guin is, is just, she's a legend. Um, she's... Just absolutely matchless. You know, if, if I ever do any work that's, that's half as good as that, I'll, I'll call that a day and think that's all right. The thing I admire most about her work, and it's, it's the thing that I discovered in my teens when I first started write, reading her and that has just, just held my attention ever since is she is so skilled at making aliens that truly feel alien. You know, she can write a scene where these, the social context makes no sense where you're just, you're a little uncomfortable and you're confused. And like what's, what's obvious to these people is not obvious to you at all, but they're, but they're just there and living your lives. And yet you're so caught up in it and so emotional anyway, that ability to, to think of aliens and to think of culture as something more than just a latex forehead is it's, you know, it's so hard to do. I mean, it, it's, it, yeah. you know, just being able to look beyond our own humanity is, is just takes a tremendous amount of imagination. And I just, I admire her so much for that. John Scalzi, on the other hand, um, first of all, I just, I find his books to be just incredibly fun. He's, he's a very entertaining writer. The quality I, I really like in his work, and it's something I ha- I have tried to emulate is, you know, to, to varying degrees of success, but he's very good at writing entry level science fiction. And by that, I don't mean uh, that it's like dumbed down or that it's not as meaty, but his books like Old Man's War is something I can very comfortably hand to a friend who doesn't normally read science fiction and be like, I think you'll, I think you'll like this. I know you don't typically read this genre, but I think you can get into this. Mm. And that's something I attempt in my, in my work as well. Um, just because I, I think it's important to get more people reading science fiction i mean i'm biased obviously but um (laughs) i'd agree with that um but i do think it's important it's something i care a lot about so i think it's i I like his books for his their their accessibility and yet the fact that you still there's still plenty for you to to sink your teeth into regardless could you recommend a book from each of those authors and say right for ursula guin start with this one and for john scalzi start with that one for john scalzi start with old man's war definitely ursula guin I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, she's just got such a, such a breadth of work. I really do think Left Hand of Darkness, I mean, I know that's kind of the go-to, but I feel like if you really want to know what she's about, like if you only read one book of hers, that's the one you should read. You know, I, there, I mean, there are others that, I mean, Earthsea is wonderful. Um, I mean, just anything in her Hainish cycle, really. But no, I mean, like Left Hand of Darkness, start there. If you like that, you'll like everything else. Okay. Okay. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about you as a writer and what you've learned about the craft in your experience so far. So what are the important two or three lessons, say, that you've learned about writing? Um, I think the biggest one is um, taking good care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, that you don't hear a lot, mm. and, you know, especially in writing, but in all creative fields, I think we romanticize the idea of, of burning out 
or of the tortured artist, you know, or the, the, the struggling artist. And the thing about struggling is it sucks. It's really, <laughs> it's really not fun. And I don't recommend it. So, and the thing is, if you are tired and hungry and unhappy, you're not going to be doing good work. You're going to be on the couch feeling tired and hungry and unhappy. And so the, the, the best metaphor I've ever heard for this, um, came from my wife who was actually not, um, in a creative field at all, but, but she obviously lives with me. So is privy to these things, but she has, a, she has a, um, cousin who, uh, is a concert cellist. And she, and I, I promise this connects to writing. Um, but she has a cousin who is a, who is a <laughs> concert cellist and, you know, she travels the world and plays with lots of different orchestras and she has to make time to take care of her instrument, right? She has to tune it. She has to buy new strings. She has to oil the wood. She has to have the right case for it. You know, this is something that takes hours out of her week. And, you know, if she travels, she makes sure she has to, if she travels by plane, she has to book a seat for it on the plane because the cargo hold is too cold and it'll mess up the wood and it won't play as well. And the thing is, as writers, we are our own instruments. You know, if we had some physical object we had to take care of, we're very good at taking care of our computers. <laughs> you know, we're terrible <laughs> at taking care of ourselves. But that's the thing is you are your instrument. You have to make time to sleep and eat and get some exercise and all of these things because otherwise you will burn out and it's not pleasant. And that's really hard. It's really hard in this field because, because we do just so grab onto that idea of, Oh, I'm going to stay up until three. And like, you know, I haven't slept in days and I haven't seen anybody in weeks. And that's just a miserable way to live. So if you really want to do this for a long time, make sure you're taking good care of yourself. So that's one. And the second is to just remember that this takes time, you know, remember that, that, yeah, yeah. You know, even if you if you have this beautiful story in your head and it means so much to you, you may not be able to write it right away and that's okay and that's expected. You know, I I got my first rejection letter 6 years ago and I got a stack of them and it was entirely deserved because I wasn't there yet. And it was it was hard at the time and at the time it was very easy to buy into, oh well, I guess I'm not any good. Well, of course I wasn't any good. You know, I hadn't practiced. <laughs> it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of work and it's not always fun. You know, and I think that's another thing that's really important to remember. Writing is not always fun. A lot of the times it's work and it's hard work and it's frustrating. But if you can get through that, then at the end, it's it's the best. But just remember that it, it'll take you time to get there. Just in connection with that issue of practice, some some people I've spoken to have talked about voice, uh, and I hadn't thought about mm -hmm. voice as a big deal before. And this is particularly editors, actually. Do, do mm -hmm. you, uh, what, what have you got to say about voice? Have you are you conscious you've developed a writing your writing voice over time? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely do think I have a voice. I think especially if you're writing fiction and you're writing characters, you have to be very conscious of voice in that you don't want your character. I mean, obviously, all your characters are going to sound a little bit like you. But one of the things I recommend with that is reading aloud. I always read all of my, my stuff aloud before I send it in to see, does this, does this sound like something people would say? I'm not even just talking about dialogue. I'm just talking about all of it in general. Make sure it flows the way you want it to. But yeah, voice is kind of a tricky thing. It's, it's so nebulous and so you can't really define it. And yet when you read particular authors, you're like, ah, yes, of course, this is, this mm. is so-and-so. Um, so I do, I do think I've reached a point where I feel like I have a sense of what that is in my work. Could I define it? No. Um, but, but I have it definitely. Yeah. And I think that, that's the thing with voice, isn't it? I mean, like, I was just thinking when you said that, that like, if you read some Ursula Le Guin, you, you begin to understand a little bit about voice, don't you? I guess. And, and even actually, if you read your book, you begin to understand about voice because your, your book does have a very strong voice, but with all voice, I think, as you say, it's just quite hard. 
you can't say oh it's that person it's becky's voice because she used this word or she said that or whatever it doesn't really work like that does it i don't think no i don't think i mean you can pick out certain things you know like you can be like oh this author really likes adverbs or you know this this really likes run-on sentences with my work i think you could you'll find very quickly that i'm fond of m dashes <laughs> and um, you know things like that so there's these little markers but i don't think it really encompasses the whole of what voice is no no Okay. Now, is there any other advice that you can think of that maybe we haven't covered that you would give to an aspiring writer in in any genre, maybe? Uh, somebody who's just, just out there struggling and trying and doing their best. What what would you say to them? I would say don't give up. And I know that's such a cliche thing to, to say, but but here's what I mean by that, is that we in, in this craft and really anybody who's making anything, self-doubt and, and imposter syndrome are are par for the course. And it is so easy to look at your own work, especially when you're just starting out and to look at people who, you know, have gotten published or are out there, you know, or, or even just if you pick up a book and you really read it and you're like, God, I'm never, I'm never going to be that. Well, of course you're not going to be that person, but, but if you keep at it and you keep going, you'll get there. You know, 10 years ago, I wasn't telling the sorts of stories I wanted to tell. My writing is still not where I want it to be. There are things I'd like to do better. And I think if you just remember that writing is a process, not a benchmark, you know, it's not like you've published and now you're done and you are a good writer forever. Yay. No, it doesn't work like that. Like this is, this is something you will, you will continue doing forever. So, so don't give up and don't hang all of, you know, don't, don't hang all of your self-worth on whether or not you're published. Publishing is nice because it pays money and because it gets your work out to more people. But it is it is not inherently what makes you a writer. Writing is what makes you a writer, you know. And if you stop, I, I, I get emails often from people who say things like, well, I'm not a real writer yet, but I'm working on a story. It's like, well, you know, you're a writer. That, that, there's no real writer. Are you writing? Good. Then you're a writer. And now you've just got to keep working on it. So stick with I it. like that. I like that. It's a process, not a benchmark. I like that. I'm going to use that, I think. Uh, uh, something I'm gonna have. Oh well, I'm I'm glad to have provided the poll quote for this episode. <laughs> and for the for anybody who wasn't doesn't quite know what it means, can you can you give us like a quick explanation of what imposter syndrome is? Oh sure, imposter syndrome, and and many of you have probably experienced this, where you achieve something or or you reach a certain goal. Let's say maybe even just let's say you got a job, or you know what have you. And you feel like you don't deserve it or that you haven't earned it. Getting a job is a good example. You get the job and you know that you've, you know, beat out a bunch of other candidates, but you're like, I, I wasn't really the right one for it. Like I got lucky. You're not actually thinking about your own skill and achievements. You're saying, oh, I got lucky. I do this often. It's something I, I struggle a lot with, you know, when, you know, it doesn't matter if you are published or, you know, award nominations or, or any of it, you know, you look and you say, well, that's good, but the other people deserve to be there more than me, you know? And I think that's something so many of us do. Like the more and more I talk to people in creative fields, that's something everyone does where you feel like everyone else, all of the rest of your peers have earned it because they're talented and they're skilled and all the rest of it. And you're there just because someone wasn't really paying attention or because they felt sorry for you. And that's not how it works <laughs> at all. But, um, but we, but it's, it's, it's something a lot of us struggle with, you know, even, even people at the, at the very top, you know, who've won all the sure. awards and have been on the mm -hmm. best, all the best seller list. They can, they still look at their work and go, oh, that's not actually very good. And I don't really deserve it. And uh, Amanda Palmer, the musician, Amanda Palmer, she, she calls this the fraud police. She has a wonderful, there's a wonderful video you can look up. If you look up Amanda Palmer fraud police, it's this talk she did at graduation about how the fraud police 
are going to come to your door and knock on it and, you know, arrest you for, for not actually being an authentic artist, which is a feeling I think a lot of us have. So that's, so that's, that's imposter syndrome in a nutshell. So uh, we talked about your book, Closed in Common Orbit, uh, and I said it's coming out later this year. Can you give us a little bit more information about when that's coming out? Yeah, so um, that's going to be published in the UK um, late October, I believe October 20th. Is, is when it'll be coming out. Um, I do not have a date for uh, the US version yet, but that will be on its heels as well. So so that's the, that's the schedule as I know it. Okay, so around about October time. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hardback at first and ebook. Yep, and then and then paperback will be will be following. And that's not the only thing you've done, and writing is not the only thing you do. So uh, how can people find out a bit more about you and access your work? You can go to my website, otherscribbles.com, because somebody has been sitting on beckychambers.com for like five years. <laughs> and uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter fairly frequently. Becky says R-A-W-R, the sound either a bear or a dinosaur makes. Um, I love to say hi to people there. Yes, you are You are on Twitter quite a bit, actually, and you have seen seen. There. Um, and are you appearing at any events soon? If people want to, I mean, I guess this might be more for people in the States than the UK, but do you go to conferences or do you speak in different places? Are you doing any of that? Uh, yeah, I don't have any UK events planned at the moment. I'm hoping to, uh, fingers crossed, but nothing to say right now. So far on the docket, I will be at Phoenix Comic Con uh, the first week in June. I will also be at Worldcon in Kansas City this August. Well, you'll have to tell me if you're coming to the UK. I'll come and I'll come and say hi. That would be great. That would be fantastic. Um, okay. So, uh, is there anything else you wanted to say to us, us listeners, uh, before we finish? Um, nothing pressing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to chat. Um, no, I'm just I'm very I'm delighted to have been here, and, and I I uh, just really appreciate uh, the invitation and and these wonderful questions. Well, yeah, you're very welcome, but don't go away yet because I haven't asked my last question. Ah. Uh, which, of course, is can you tell us your best space joke, please? You know, the thing about space jokes, did you know that not all people enjoy space jokes? I actually do know of an entity that doesn't like space jokes. Do you want to know? Do you want to know what it is? Yeah, go on then. Okay. So um, the dog star, the dog star is not a fan of space jokes. Oh, why is that? It's too serious. <laughs> I got it. You got it. We, we got it. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'll be here all week. Except your waitress. That's that's cool. That's cool. Anybody anybody don't get that? Just go and look it up. I'll look it go up. Look, it's really funny. Go and look up the dog stuff. <laughs> <laughs> do you know any other ones? Do I know any? Or, or is that it? Any other yeah. ones? Do you know any other? Well, jokes? do you do you know what um, an astronaut's favorite key on the keyboard is? No. What is the an, an astronaut's favorite key on the keyboard? That's the space bar, of course. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Here all week, Becky. <laughs> I'm so glad I've gotten to a point in my life where people actually ask me these things. Yeah, totally. Well, you you had it coming because you know people people look you up on on the internet. They'll find that that little video that you did uh, for Hodder and Stoughton. You know, you said these guys told me to do some publicity thing, but I'm going to tell a joke, and then you do. <laughs> And you tell a joke. You obviously enjoy telling jokes. I do. I do. I ch- I tell them for my own amusement. I don't really care if other people laugh. I know they're funny. They are funny. Now that's so. great. <laughs> Well, that's, it has been it's been great to talk to you, Becky, uh, and thank you so much for for your time. We've had, we've had a great time and covered a lot of really useful and interesting stuff. So I'll say goodbye to you and let you go now. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. This has been a great time. I've I've really enjoyed myself. Cool, great. Thank you very much, then, Becky. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.